Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Stay tuned to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as we sit down with Dr. Nick Wilborn to talk about the Hodge-Thornwell Exchange. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and today we do have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Nick Wilborn. He happens to be a professor of mine here at the seminary, and um, I've had the pleasure of having him uh, in two classes so far in my time here at Greenville Seminary. But he has his MDiv from Mid-America Baptist uh, Seminary, as well as his PhD from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he's on to talk about his discussion that will be occurring at the Spring Theology Conference this year. In fact, the Spring Theology Conference starts in just a couple weeks. And his subject of discussion is going to be on the Hodge Thornwell Exchange. Now, some of you out there listening to this program may be thinking, hmm, what is that all about? Well, that's why we're having him in the room to talk about this particular subject, some of the ins and outs of it, and so forth. So, um, again, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Nick Wilborn in studio today to talk with us about church history, but specifically this subject. So, Dr. Wilborn, we do welcome you to the program. I'm glad you could be here. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, just a quick question, maybe to start things out, um, just to open things up a little bit. Your your background is church history. That's what you did your PhD work in, in historical and theological studies. Why is church history an important subject for the Christian today? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, a couple of years ago at, at the seminary's spring conference, um, James White was one of the guest speakers. And I remember uh, during one of the Q&A times, James just commented, uh, and I don't remember what the question was that prompted him to say this, but he said uh, in looking back over the years of his ministry, two, two disciplines within a seminary education really prepared him and really continued to serve him well in his apologetic work. One was the original languages, working in God's Word, and uh, the other was uh, church history and historical theology, mm. so that he was better able to recognize uh, errant arguments from the past. You know, Paul calls us in Acts chapter 20, uh, calls the elders of the church to be able to, to uh, recognize those wolves that might rise up from within the church as well as those that might try to creep in from outside. And... Uh, it's pretty simple, really. If, if you don't know, uh, for instance, today, you know, one of the one of the problems we're having evangelicalism um, is to a good degree not trinitarian. Mm-hmm. They're leading evangelical uh, ministers and personalities who are not trinitarian. And if you don't know those early church councils and the great debates and the formulations that the church uh, gained out of that period and what the arguments were, uh, you might not recognize some of the nuances of what they're saying and realize that they've they've strayed from Orthodox Christianity. Hmm. So it's 
do you find that um, there's a, a, a maybe in today's church a greater ignorance of church history, and if so, why? You know, I said in a sermon yesterday um, morning, uh, illustrating a point in the sermon, uh, that I would hope that everyone in the in the hall uh, would recognize the name Charles Hodge. Now, that was a hope, as in I hope that I have something really good to eat tonight, not as in the hope we have of Christ's second coming and, and the great benefits of the new heavens and new earth. Um, that hope, I think, was uh, probably uh, par- only partially realized in the congregation that people would know Charles Hodge because, frankly, people uh, don't engage uh, church history that much. Uh, we don't engage history that much. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason that we can repeat the kind of errors that we do. Uh, you know, the wise man of the Old Testament said there's nothing new under the sun, and that's true with theological errors as well as uh, political errors, uh, social, economic abuses. They come and they go, and if you don't know those things, you're bound to repeat them, and we don't study them, I think, uh, largely because it takes some effort to mm-hmm. read dusty old books. But there's much to gain there. Yeah, and in today's world, it seems like uh, putting that kind of effort with um, instamatic entertainment, if you will, on the Internet and whatnot, just uh, it, it seems to be a lost discipline to spend a significant amount of time reading this stuff, reading these works. And, and some of it is, it is sometimes difficult even to read because it's, it's older and the language is a little bit different than maybe we're used to. But you have to do the, the work that's required. And um, I think we share the same opinions as church history. As you said, uh, we're bound to repeat those mistakes if we don't know. And certainly, if anybody should know in the church, it certainly should be the elders and the pastors who are charged with guiding their sheep and protecting them from these from these heretical views that are really not new, just repackaged. That's right. Elements. Yeah, and you're right. I I think we as elders of the church are bound by Scripture to do to know what's gone before, so we can better protect and and teach the sheep. Now, your your conference lecture, and for those who are listening um, today, um, we're talking about the Spring Theology Conference that Greenville Seminary has every year. This year's focus is on uh, Princeton Seminary and how Greenville Seminary was consciously modeled after the uh, the model of Princeton and um, Princeton Seminary, I should quickly say. And Dr. Wilborn's uh, lecture this year will be on ecclesiology, specifically the Hodge-Thornwell Exchange. Now, Dr. Wilborn, who is Hodge? Who are we talking about here? Yeah. And we'll do a little brief bio sure. of Hodge and Thornwell and then kind of get into the specifics. Yeah, Charles Hodge is, um, as I hinted a moment ago, it's a name that everyone should be familiar with. Uh, if if nothing else, most most pastors and a number of elders will be familiar with his three-volume systematic theology. Um, and, I, and I hope they're familiar with it not only as a set on their shelves, but for the content that's there. It's encyclopedic. It's uh, a marvelous document. Uh, Paul Helm, one of the leading, in my opinion, philosopher, theologians of our day, has uh, written a number of uh, wonderful posts on his blog, uh, uh, Helm's Deep. Hmm. I get no remuneration for mentioning it. 
but uh, on Hodge and the abiding relevance of his prolegomena, the abiding relevance of his theological propedeutic, he is uh, he's a considerable figure, and he's written a good deal on Hodge, showing why he's an abiding should be an abiding interest. He uh, he really should get credit for setting the stage for much of Protestant. Uh, Christianity in the United States uh, for the, the latter part of the 19th century and certainly into the 20th century. And, uh, uh, you know, a man who lived to, to be an octogenarian, uh, which says a good deal about his, his constitution uh, living in the 19th century. Uh, he, as um, a man who, who loved and a man who gave and uh, taught for over 50 years at Princeton Seminary, was one of the early students when the seminary was founded in 1812. He then was in one of those early classes, recognized by Alexander and by Miller as being, uh, you know, a, a a student that they wanted to cultivate. And uh, and then eventually he became a faculty member and stayed mm-hmm. for those many years and trained thousands of ministers for the Presbyterian Church and other churches as well. Hmm. Now, how would um, how would Hodge compare? in your estimation, against some of the maybe top theologians that maybe are more household names, perhaps a Calvin or a, well, a Calvin? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think uh, I think that uh, you know, Calvin certainly was uh, remarkable in many ways, unmatched in church history. When you think of, you know, your, your leading Thinkers, you think Augustine, uh, then you think uh, uh, perhaps Anselm, Aquinas, uh, and you think Calvin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calvin uh, was out of that Renaissance uh, humanist education tradition, not to be confused with the humanist movement of the 20th century, but the humanist tradition of that time that was big on going to the source, go to the source, mm. don't be reliant upon the secondary uh uh, matter that's right here, convenient to you, perhaps in their day, the Middle Ages, but going back to the sources, and that meant for Calvin ultimately back to the the, the scripture, and so his writings, his commentaries, etc., just remarkable. Hodge, in that sense, is not a Calvin. Hodge is, is uh, you know, he is said to have. Uh, 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 he, he said concerning Princeton that after these many years of teaching there and its its 50 years or so of existence, that uh, nothing new had ever come out of Princeton. By that he meant no new doctrines, no new thinking, that they were a school uh, uh, bolstered upon the Reformation principles and teaching. And so they were there simply to to perpetuate that and to propagate that thinking. And that's that's uh, not altogether true, but it's largely uh, mm. true. Uh, and so when I said a moment ago his three-volume systematic theology is really encyclopedic because what he does is he works you through various views on the, on the various uh, loci of theology and will finally tell you the, the, the standard Reformed theological view as he understands it. So it'll take some plowing to get through. It's not nearly as exciting, for instance, as reading Calvin's mm-hmm. Institutes. It doesn't have that uh, – you don't sense from Hodge that this is a 
This is a theology of the Holy Spirit, whereas Hodges Institutes have often been called, you know, a theology of the Holy Spirit because they're so lively and they're so um, engaging. Hodge, on the other st- on the other hand, is is something for plotters. But there's there's reward at the end of it. Sure, I, I remember when I first was introduced to the Reformed faith and trying to read through Hodge, and I found it well because I was early on in my understanding of Reformed doctrine. I found it very tedious at some level. Um, I think it would be different now um, with a little more education and, and understanding of various teachings. But you're right; there is a different feel to Hodge's systematic as opposed to Calvin's. Uh, systematic. Now, the other side of the coin, we have um, Thornwell, and that's the the subject of your discussion at the conference. Will be on this this clash, this this debate, this uh, controversy, if you will, between these two men. Well, first of all, who was who was Thornwell? Yeah, James Henley Thornwell. Uh, I, I should say too that I, I really do think um, part of understanding their existence and their their interactions uh, and and you know I don't want this to be taken wrongly by any means but Hodge was born and bred in in uh, Philadelphia and lived his life in the Philadelphia Princeton area uh, certainly traveled for a two-year period in Europe had that exposure uh, Thornwell on the other hand was uh, was a product of South Carolina he mm. was a southerner he was uh, born in South Carolina. He spent his life outside of his travels to general assemblies and to Europe on for health reasons and for just gathering cultural uh, awareness. Uh, but um, he was a young man that, like Hodge, was was uh, without a father most of his life. His father died when he was a little boy. Hodge's father died when he was just a few months old. Um, they have a lot in common when it comes right down to it, and it's unfortunate. Maybe I can, maybe I can help this along next week. It's unfortunate that when, when most pastors and seminary students think about Charles Hodge and James Henley Thornwell, they do think about their differences, and yet they had an awful lot in common. They were both old school Presbyterians. Uh, they were both. Um, uh, holders to the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. Um, they were both men who esteemed the Westminster standards, confession and catechisms. Um, they were uh, men that held to the inerrancy of Scripture. They, uh, they were men who agreed on an awful lot. It's one of those cases where because their debated issues were so public, held in the in the public forum from general assembly floors to print through the biblical repertory, the Princeton uh, journal to the Southern Presbyterian review, the Southern uh, journal Uh, you have, um, you have them so publicly disagreeing that people tend to think that's, that was who they were. They were just Mm -hmm. both disagreeable cusses and uh, and they weren't they as I said they had much in common their methodology their theological methodology is 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 a is very similar their philosophical approach to theology was similar uh, if not identical uh, and so unfortunate I think that that their differences get the highlights so next week I'll try to fix that a bit <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way, and I, I guess um, I'm one of those people that kind of fell into that. You, you think of the, you tend to think of the differences between the two men, um, even but not realizing that there was so much that they agreed on. They were they were co-laborers really in in a lot of fights and battles in the church, both from the Southern Presbyterian and a Northern Presbyterian perspective. However, and as we're here to talk about today, there was this clash. There was this controversy that arose, and and it seems that even today it's still being studied or still being yeah. examined and looked at. What was, well, what were the issues that yeah. that divided them in this way? Yeah, let me let me say this before I lay out the the major areas, and that is that uh, you know we live in a time where. Through internet, uh, Facebook uh, conferences, people travel. You know, we fly places and attend conferences. If we hear that uh, some of the leading mm-hmm. preachers are going to all be in in a little place, someplace, uh, or a big place, someplace, we we make it there and sit and we meet them and we email correspondence with them. Uh, this is a very different time. I, I I've through the years have have often thought that had Thornwell and Hodge had more uh, exposure to one another, uh, much like I've thought in the Southern context, if Dabney and Gerardo had had more hands-on exposure to one another, uh, there might have been uh, some better outcomes uh, and less uh, polarization on some issues. The issues are, are, are varied, but you're right. They generally fit in the, in the discipline of ecclesiology. And, uh, and I think uh, Andrew Hoffaker, who's uh, written the, the recent uh, biography of Charles Hodge, uh, PNR has published it, um, I think he's, he's right that most everything we see stems from their nuanced difference on uh, what the nature of Presbyterianism is. Uh, certainly are both Presbyterians, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference there. Uh, they both believed in a, in a version of Ure Duino or divine right uh, Presbyterianism, but there's a, there's a, Mm, how to say this for Thornwell there's a heightened uh emphasis upon it that you don't find I think in Hodge well before we press down that road just for those who may not understand what do we mean by divine right Presbyterianism yeah. I mean a summary I'm sure that we, we could talk about that for quite a while I'm sure yeah. but in a summary fashion how would you explain that to the average person yeah. in the pew yeah and this is this is cutting a bit on the simplistic side, but it's it's close enough to leave it for our purposes today. Uh, it means that we believe that the Bible is sufficient for establishing our ecclesiology. Mm. What we believe and practice about the church and in the church is established upon the principles of Holy Scripture and those good and necessary consequences, those inferences we draw from it. Um, and there um, we see them differing a bit. Uh, Thornwell would have argued 
pretty strongly that, um, for instance, on um, the case of um, the case of the offices, whether or not the minister and the elder are two distinct offices, Thornwell would say no, they're one office, but they have two two functions that. Uh, they're both apt to teach, but one is given more to the ruling, and they come from the membership of the church. One is given uh, to teaching uh, primarily, and his credentials reside in the presbytery. Thornwell insisted that their qualifications are the same because the Bible only gives us that one set of qualifications, mm-hmm. 1 Timothy 3, First uh, Peter, etc., Hodge would have nuanced that a bit to the point that he would have recognized that, uh, no, I'm going to distinguish between the two. And uh, Thornwell thought that was stepping outside the bounds of what Scripture taught. Hodge thought it wasn't, uh, but he just wasn't being quite as uh, wooden or literalistic with it as Thornwell was. Uh, so that's that's where it becomes a you know, in application, you see how important it is. Now, that issue still, even in today's church, gets a lot of attention. And um, you're a minister in the PCA. Um, I think I have that correct. Yes. And uh, in fact, uh, for those who are interested, uh, Dr. Wilborn just uh, they just dedicated a brand new building. Um, and at the end of the discussion, we'll give the website and uh, you can take a look at it. It's actually quite remarkable facility. But anyway, I digress. Um, but that discussion, uh, the offices and issues, that's still discussed even today amongst uh, well-meaning and, and well-intentioned Presbyterians. Um, sure. d- has there been sort of a, somewhat of a mixing of the two positions, Horge, Thon- uh, Hodge Thornwell, as far as like where the PCA stands on the subject? Um, I, I think both the PCA and OPC, uh, you find people who... Uh, both cheer uh, that there's been something of a a, a, a lessening of, of differences and others that lament that there's been a lessening of the differences of course. Uh, between uh, – I've had some correspondence recently uh, where somebody mentioned that very thing, that it's unfortunate in their opinion that there's not a, a greater distinction maintained between the minister and the elder uh, the, as we would – Say in the in the PCA, the teaching elder and the ruling elder, and so there are those that uh, that hold both views. And then I I don't know. This is a guess. I think it's somewhat based upon interaction with a, a lot of people around the PCA. But I suspect there's a larger middle ground that really doesn't see mm-hmm. any reason to really discuss the issue or even be concerned whether there's a distinction between the minister and the elder, the offices, whether there's two offices, elder and deacon, or there's three, minister and elder and deacon. Um, so it just depends on where you are, really, as to how much uh, how much enjoyment you might have out of the discussion. Well, yes, yeah, so since, since you raised that, um, is it an important issue? Well, Thornwell would certainly say so. He he would say that uh, we we only find in the scriptures the the pastor teacher office as the continuing um, ordinary office mm-hmm. of the church for the spiritual benefit of the 
of the church, and that that pastor teacher is is defined for us in Acts chapter twenty as elder, overseer, uh, and pastor. Those three terms used synonymously and interchangeably. Uh, Peter does a similar thing in First Peter five, uh, so he'd maintain that there is. Uh, you know, to to Hodge's defense, and for honesty's sake, Hodge made a point that. Uh, that, of course, uh, the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church historically, has known a distinction between the minister and the elder. And he, he will ap- appeal to the Westminster uh, form of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll appeal to some of the older uh, documents of the Reformation period. And, and at that point, he's right. Um, Thornwell wants us to say, fine, but... Let's look at the scripture afresh one more time. Now, that's almost, again, a false distinction and making it sound like Hodge was just concerned about historical uh, mm-hmm. data and Thornwell was only concerned about the biblical data, and they both were neither of those. Uh, but there was a big push on Hodge's part to say, and he even says at one point that, you know, it's uh, it's a bit presumptuous at this late stage to start uh, thinking that we can tweak Presbyterianism. Hmm. Well, I think Thornwell would have thought differently. Well, I know sure. he did. Sure. Stuart Robinson, the Kentuckian, uh, in his Church of God, an excellent little volume on ecclesiology, uh, says that you know ecclesiology. Remember, he's writing in 1857-58 when he publishes that little volume. He says ecclesiology is the last discipline to be developed, that it hasn't. In the early church, the doctrine of God, Christology, in the uh, Reformation church, soteriology, and now he says it's time for ecclesiology to be developed. Well, that that would strike a pretty strong contrast with, with Dr. Hodge's statement that you know we're kind of late to be trying to change Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. Thornwell thought it was time to reform it. It needed help, and... And so he, he was, that was his perspective on it. Now, this wasn't the only issue no. that these two men um, dealt with. And certainly in this discussion today, and for those who are listening, um, this discussion is designed to whet your appetite into these issues. Um, at the end of the broadcast, we're going to ask, um, I'll ask my guests to give us some resources that we can look look at. Um, we certainly don't have the time to unpack every conceivable point of doctrine and issue that these two men had and some of these controversies and, and unpack even those elements that come out of them. So this is to help sort of frame you or push you in that direction to say, hey, I want to learn more about this. And um, But this wasn't the only issue. There was another dominating oh. issue. Oh, there were several. Yeah, there was the, the issue... Hodge uh, was very instrumental after the old school, new school division in 1837. It was instrumental in, in getting the old school back on track to do its own missionary work, uh, believing like Thornwell, who is considerably younger than Hodge, by the way. Uh, Hodge uh, was born in, eight, in 1797, I think I remember that correctly, and uh, Thornwell was born in 1812. So there's a a good age difference. Thornwell dies just shy of his 50th birthday, and Hodge lives on to be uh, 80 uh, some odd years old. So uh, it's um, at, at the time of the old school, new school division, 
Thornwell's still just a young man coming into the ministry. Hodge is an, a leader in the church at that time already, and he helps the church establish, uh, coming out of an independent parachurch orientation, establish uh, a missionary board. Mm. As Thornwell thinks through this and begins to mature his thoughts, he thinks this is not good because that board's acting somewhat autonomous from the General Assembly, and he doesn't think the church has that discretionary power. And that was a big topic of discussion between them and and really at the heart of the issue. What is the discretionary power of the church? Hodge said the church could set up a board that could function, uh, for all practical purposes, independent alongside the church, uh, as long as it was for the church. Mm. And, and Thornwell said, no, I don't think we have that, that discretion. We, we can only do what we're given the right to do, and so the church has to do that. They can't farm it off to a board or a parachurch or, or any other organization. Uh, there was the uh, – uh, we've mentioned the issue of the offices. There was the issue of boards and committees. Uh, there was – the degree to which the church is a spiritual institution. Uh, Thornwell didn't think the church had a right to speak to social and political issues as the church, but rather as individual Christians. Hodge thought there were times when the church had a a moral obligation to address issues, uh, although they were not to, and he was strong on the confessional point, not to intermeddle with the civil magistrate. But I think probably... uh, uh, one that that most people uh, think of when they think of the various debates that Thornwell and Hodge had, these public debates, uh, is the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, just summarily, Thornwell was of the opinion that, um, that the Roman Catholic Church was one of those synagogues of Satan mm-hmm. that the Westminster Confession speaks of. Uh, which the confession says also in that same context is no church of Christ. Uh, he was quite convinced of that and, and led the church to, to vote to that effect in, in, uh, in a general assembly. That then spawned a pastoral question in the church, and that is, okay, if Rome is not a true church, uh, which Hodge's position was it's true, but it's impure. Thornwell's point was that, no, it's not true. That then raised a question pastorally of, what about a Roman Catholic baptism? Is that a valid baptism? And just in short, Thornwell said no, and Hodge said yes. And people still debate that, still appeal to Hodge's argument, and still appeal to Thornwell's argument. And in the PCA, that question is is left to the discretion of the, the local session. Uh, they get to make that determination, and uh, I uh, of the opinion that either the Bible speaks to this or it doesn't, but um, regardless, it's still still a, a very important pastoral issue. Well, sure, we're dealing with one of the two sacraments of the church that Christ left us, and we ought to be able to get these things right. But I think as this exchange, and as we've talked, and just wrapping things up a little bit here, as we've talked, the one thing that comes to mind, even on a, from a practical perspective, is that oftentimes throughout church history, godly men disagree. And it's not always the disagreements necessarily, but it's in the manner of which they disagreed. And 
I know you've read m- m- many of the documents that centered around the letters and the things that went back and forth in the journal, uh, uh, the, the articles that showed up in journals and whatnot. What what was the tone of these two men as they interacted? I mean, these, yeah. some of these issues were pretty severe issues. Yeah, you know, when you do research and you get into original documentation, you sometimes find things you don't like. Sometimes you even find things you wish you hadn't found. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago finding some correspondence uh, toward the end of the 1880s. Um, exchanged by two men who were of the same opinion on a certain debated issue in the Southern Church, the Presbyterian Church U.S. And in those exchanges, in their letters, they they said some things that were almost unthinkable about some of their brothers in the church who held different views. And I remember just wishing I could have erased that, you know. Uh, you... You computer guys know that you you know go into a hard drive and make those things kind of go away. Well, in our minds, there's no such thing as making those things go away. I have the I have the copies of those scribbled letters, uh, uh, but more than that, they're etched on my mind. And and uh, when you look at Hodge and Thornwell, uh, they 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 were rather heated sometimes. Um, you know, there's that exchanges, uh, where yes, sometimes Thornwell sounded a bit arrogant, frankly, about his knowledge of philosophy. Mm. And, uh, I would have to say my humble opinion, Thornwell was the, the philosophical mind of the two. They both had their philosophical commitments and, and that's not to say Hodge was less intellectual, but at that point. Um, even Hoffaker comments that uh, Hodge was not as perceptive about some issues. For instance, Kant, Mm -hmm. when he's writing from Europe, he doesn't seem to really understand Kant and and his religious errors that his philosophy supported. Um, But that doesn't give Thornwell the right, I think, to to say some of the things he did, it sounded to me, it sounds to me still that eh, that was a bit over the top. And Hodge then reacted to that in manners that sounded a, a bit reactionary. He didn't let that part of his brain cool off any before he, before he wrote. You know, we often think in the age of blogs and mm-hmm. IMs and text messages, whatever. And- Facebook you know, messages. How easy it is to just in the spur of the moment say something and hit the send button. It's, it's gone. gone. You can't take it back. Right. And you'd think that back in those days with writing letters, writing essays that would be published where you're going to read them over and over several times before they go off to print or they go in the mail, that you'd eliminate some of those. Uh, well, maybe it did. Maybe it eliminated some that and we never saw. I, I'm sure it did. But even then, it's uh, sometimes two men that were were known as gentlemen uh, said some things that didn't sound too gentlemanly. And it's a good reminder to us that, you know, none of us are as objective as we think we are. None of us uh, have the corner on all truth like we sometimes think we do. And none of us are, are quite as gentle and meek as the Bible calls us to be. Mm. We can speak the, the truth uh, harshly sometimes instead of 
in love, as we're called to. Absolutely. Now, how is this, um, just to wrap things up, how did this, this debate, just maybe a couple bullet points, how did the debate, the exchange between these, these giants, really, um, hurt the church? And how did it help the church? Wow. Good question. Uh, I think any time you have two men of the stature of Thornwell and Hodge disagreeing, the tendency is to polarize. You know, you're going to have your Hodge group and you're going to have your Thornwell group. Uh, that happens today. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, you know, you got your followers of Apollos, Paul, and he even says, you know, even for you guys that are following Christ, um, you need to need to straighten up. In other words, uh, they were they were following Christ to the point that they weren't recognizing Paul's mm-hmm. apostolic role. Uh, almost as as you know, you've heard me say this. They were sort of the red letter version of Christianity back then. They apparently were just pleading, well, Jesus said, and thinking that set them apart from Paul. Mm. And uh, and so anytime you have those kind of personalities, you're going to have some polarization, and, and that's unfortunate. I think that still plays into it. I hear it. Uh, the good of the church is that two, you know, two uh, princes in Israel debated important issues and put material out there that the church continues to draw from. Mm. Uh, You know, several years ago now, when the Roman Catholic baptism question was raised in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, uh, we we gained out of that two documents. And those two documents are largely drafted along the lines of Dr. Thornwell's arguments and Dr. Hodge's arguments. And so, you know, in our book of position papers in the PCA, if you look up the topic, Roman Catholic baptism, you're virtually going to read Dr. Thornwell's positions and Dr. Hodge's positions, and people largely uh, recognize that and know that they're still important 150 years later. Hmm. Well, those are good words, Dr. Wilborn. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I mentioned earlier in the interview, um, in the discussion about your new church that you just had dedicated recently. And so where are you pastoring? And um, maybe if you have a website, why don't you go ahead and offer that? And at the same time, maybe offer some resources for the listeners on this subject. Um, We started the program talking about the fact that many people really just don't study church history. Well, we're going to give them an opportunity to start somewhere, and this maybe is a good place to begin. These two giants, um, uh, and maybe offer some resources in that area. Sure. Well, I, I, uh, some listeners will know I taught here at Greenville Seminary for ten years full time before um, in two thousand nine leaving to uh, to be pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is uh, right on the outskirts of Knoxville in eastern Tennessee. Uh, we have, uh, over these three years and uh, uh, four, including the stated supply interim period I spent at the church, uh, we've, we've moved 
uh, twice from an old location to an interim location to a brand new uh, facility on 22 beautiful acres in in the hills of East Tennessee. And God's uh, God's good to bless us. You can uh, uh, look us up on the web at covenant-pca.com. Uh, we're one of the few churches with a .com, but that you have to understand that Covenant was probably one of the early churches to even have an Internet site. And uh, it was built around... Uh, not only the church doings, but also uh, Pastor David Hall at the time uh, sold books through that site, mm-hmm. and so it was there was some commerce there uh, through the F- Covenant Foundation and Covenant Presbyterian well, those Church. Those distinctions don't mean much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they used to be a day where that mattered. Now it doesn't seem to make any difference. But um, uh, it's a it's a great place when you're visiting the Knoxville area, going to the Smokies. We often have folks vacationing in the Smoky Mountains. We're about an hour, an hour and 30 minutes from most anywhere in the Smokies. So people drive in and worship with us, and um, uh, we'd be happy to have everyone. Let's see. What else did you ask me? Resources. Resources. You know, there are actually a number of uh, uh dissertations that have been written. Uh, Let me mention one uh, that's uh, fairly easy to access. It's called The Ecclesiology of of James Henley Thornwell. It's written by uh, John Vance. I met John years ago and um, through uh, T. David Gordon. And uh, that work on ecclesiology is a good foundational place. Um. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, B.M. Palmer's Life and Times of James Henley Thornwell is a good resource still because it gives you a lot of the the letters uh, of Thornwell. It gives you a lot of the data from from uh, general assemblies that uh, you would otherwise maybe not have access to. And so those two are good sources for Thornwell. This recent biography by uh, Andrew Hoffaker, who's retired historian at Reform Seminary in Jackson mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, like every book, uh, I would take exception to a few of his interpretive uh, uh, positions. But with that said, I would also recommend the book highly. Uh, his chapter, for instance, that summarizes these debated issues is one of the best succinct statements of this that you'll find. So you could get a good quick overview of what these debates were what was the i'm sorry to interrupt you what yeah. was the title of that book it's it's andrew hoffaker it's just called uh, charles hodge the pride of princeton hmm. and i think i remember in our class um Presbyterian church history you had recommended we read about hodge in a certain order do you remember how you put that as far as books read this book first then read this book yeah, um, I This is do. what happens when we don't rehearse the program, yeah. and so I drop these questions on the on on the, on the poor guest, and uh, I feel kind of like David Letterman, it. rather dumb he, right he now. Kind of just have to answer these questions. <laughs> um, all of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank. Well, this there, is what makes this fun. There was there was also a, a, a biography of Hodge. Um, you can edit this out, by the way, my ramblings. Um, published just before Hoffecker's uh, by a professor in another discipline, uh, and it has some 
strengths to it, but it also has a number of weaknesses, which Hofker's doesn't have, largely because I think Hofker understands and is um, has an affinity for the theology of Hodge more than the the other author. And I'm not avoiding saying his name because I don't want you to buy his book or read it. <laughs> I just cannot right now. Uh, yep. Uh, the last name is G-U-T-J-A-H-R, and I can't think of his first name. Sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. And it's just entitled Charles Hodge. It's published by Oxford University Press, so it's it's it good and expensive. Yeah, and it shouldn't be too hard to no. look up. Google it. We all That's have right. internet, and you're listening to this program on the internet, so you certainly um, have access to that. Well, I want to do thank. Uh, I do want to thank Dr. Wilborn for taking time out of his schedule. Um, he he is very busy, as he indicated. He's a pastor of a church. He's also an adjunct professor here at the seminary, and has just, in fact, just arrived today to teach his class this evening and tomorrow. So he did take some time out to talk with us about his lecture that he'll be doing at our Spring Theology Conference. So, Dr. Wilborn, I do appreciate your time. Uh-huh. And, and, and trust me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have just scratched the surface. Um, I have had the pleasure of sitting in on two of his classes, and I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot of what I I, I realize there's a lot I don't know about this subject, but uh, jump in, start somewhere, and that's usually a good place to start. So, um, again, thank you for your time. It's good to be here. You've been listening to a discussion with Dr. Nick Wilborn. He is a professor here at Greenville Seminary as well as a pastor in the PCA, and um, we've been talking about his topic that he'll be doing at the Spring Theology Conference that Greenville Seminary hosts, Seminary hosts every year. And it is coming up rapidly. Uh, it'll be next week, March 13th through the 15th. There is still time, of course, to register for the conference. You can do so by simply going to our website at www.gpts.edu. If you have any questions or concerns about the podcast, you want to write in, ask questions, you could easily write us at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. So until next week, when we talk with Dr. Tony Curto about missions and evangelism as it relates to Princeton Seminary. I do thank everybody for listening to this particular edition, and God bless.